Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up, features books from 61 literary publishers. All Lit Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. What's more, for a limited time, listeners of Between the Covers get 10% off all books on All Lit Up with promo code Between the Covers. Check out All Lit Up at www.alllitup.ca. That's A L L L I T U P dot C A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sarah Krasnestein's The Believer Encounters with the Beginning, the End, and Our Place in the Middle, which James Glick calls deeply beautiful and never simple, through six profiles of a death doula, of a geologist who believes the world is 6,000 years old, of a lecturer in neurobiology who spends his weekends ghost hunting, of the fiancé of a disappeared pilot and UFO enthusiast, of a woman incarcerated for killing her husband after suffering years of domestic violence, and of Mennonite families in New York. Krasnestein takes readers on an unforgettable tour of the human condition that explores our universal need for belief to help us make sense of life, death, and everything in between. Says Alex Marzano Lesnovich, if reading a book can make you more human, The Believer does just that. The Believer is out now from Tin House. So in the ongoing collective brainstorm that I've been doing with the supporters of Between the Covers, a brainstorm of who would be our utmost dream guests to invite or to invite back on the show, Solma Sharif is a name that comes up more often than most. I was telling her after we finished recording today's conversation how different it felt talking to her this time than it did in 2016, even as I couldn't put my finger on what it was. Was it that we had changed and grown? Was it even possible to assess that, given how much has changed in the world? Whether the pandemic for the last two years, the Trump effect on political discourse for the past five, the very tangible feeling now of our human deranged climate, not intellectually, but in our bodies each year, and the world shutting down and then returning from all of this without a new plan, now reopening with a hope to return to a status quo that was already untenable before any of this became manifest. Certainly, we've both been changed by this too. But regardless of reasons or causes, there is a big change between Solmaz's first book, Look, and her second, Customs, even as they are both very recognizably work by the same poet. In preparing for this conversation, I was thinking about 
the recent episode with Rabi Alamedine and his essay in Harper's called Comforting Myths. One of the things it looks at and which Rabi and I talked about was how the U.S. will take immigrants or diasporic writers within the U.S. and put them forth as the quote-unquote cute other, the other that elevates America's own self-regard and its own narrative as a diverse melting pot. But that if we were to read the true other, the one not being put forth, the one not being translated, the one speaking to and against the cultural production of empire, that that is the last thing the U.S. would really want. And thus the cute other, almost always an American citizen or someone with deep ties to American academic institutions, whether their family origins are from Lebanon or Mexico or Nigeria, this cute other stands in to represent the true other. This makes me think of something Ursula K. Le Guin said in one of our conversations, which is that dictators are always afraid of poets. But what would it take for an American poet to create work that couldn't be easily metabolized, that actually could strike fear from within? And what would a reader experience in reading such a work, one that might have to not be quote-unquote good poetry, to not be on good behavior, to not be these things in order to truly unsettle us? I think these are some of the animating questions and desires in Solmaz's latest book, a book that unsettled me for sure. And in this conversation, I wanted to stay with the gestures and the moves she makes to try to do so, to try to unsettle us, to linger there, sometimes uncomfortably in questions we aren't supposed to ask, as a way to both evoke and explore the poetics of her latest book and the relationship between art and politics, words, and actions. If you find value in what you hear today, consider supporting this quixotic endeavor. Consider becoming a supporter of Between the Covers. Every supporter joins the collective brainstorm that shapes the future writers that are invited onto the show. Every supporter gets resource-rich emails with each episode. And then there are just a ton of other possible benefits from bonus readings, craft talks from everyone from Kava Akbar to Rabia Alamedine to Natalie Diaz to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. All of this and much, much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Solmaz Sharif. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever 
come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Solma Sharif. Born in Istanbul to Iranian parents, Sharif received her undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley, where she studied within and taught for June Jordan's Poetry for the People. She has an MFA in poetry from NYU, was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, was Managing Director of the Asian American Writers Workshop, and is currently a professor of creative writing at Arizona State University, where she is inaugurating a Poetry for the People program there. Her debut poetry collection, Look, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Penn Open Book Award, and the winner of the 2017 American Book Award for Poetry, and was singled out everywhere from the New York Times to the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the best books of that year. Yusef Kumanyaka says of Look, by unearthing, decoding, and reconstructing half-hidden symbols of power built into nomenclature, as well as everyday expression, the poet serves truth, sometimes delicately, other times brutally. Each phrase pulls the reader into a system of being personal and historical, and look line by line extends toward prophecy and harmony. The publication of Look was also the reason for Solmaz's first appearance on Between the Covers, one of the most beloved conversations to date. Sharif's work has been in Harper's Poetry Magazine, The New York Times, The Paris Review. It has been recognized by the Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and the Holmes National Poetry Prize, and it has garnered her fellowships from the NEA and the Lannan Foundation. But Sharif's love of poetry long precedes her studies, or the prizes and accolades. Her first published poem, included in the anthology A World Between Poems, Short Stories, and Essays by Iranian Americans, was written at the age of 13. Since her debut, Soma Sharif has also been translating the poetry of the iconic Iranian poet Farag Farakzad, and she's here today for one of the most anticipated books of 2022, her second collection of poetry, just out from Grey Wolf Press, called Customs. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, says, Sharif movingly excavates in her powerful second collection an internal landscape haunted by psychic dissonance and fractured identity. As the title suggests, these works are preoccupied with the in-between. Sharif's commanding voice reverberates throughout this complex and confident collection. Alina Stefanescu for Bomb Magazine adds, while reading customs, I thought of Edward Said, who in parallels and paradoxes said that music composed by those in exile reflects not just estrangement from a social world, but also from the inherited tonal world, the accepted world, 
the world of habit and custom, the solid known world. Sharif's recent poems lean into what Saeed calls an absence of tonality, a kind of homelessness, a kind of permanent exile because you're not going to come back. In customs, the rupture of displacement is replicated in syntax, in the cascade of broken brackets which dilate the text, in the absence of an endpoint or final location. Places are not named often, perhaps because they do not exist. Return is impossible, and the place of origin exists only in the mind. For those in exile, home is nowhere now. There is no closure, no endpoint, no reprieve. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Solma Sharif. Thanks so much, David. I'm just so um, thrilled and honored to be here with you today. Me too. Um, Well, I wanted to start with your relationship to the first person I, to the voice of the new, of the new book. Mm -hmm. Look, look was more conceptual in structure and more polyvocal than customs. And yet you've talked about how when you were writing look, you didn't want the concept of look to become a gimmick that the poems like the long poem about your uncle in look that brought an I into the book were part of preventing that. And yet you've also talked about how the few poems with an eye in look were often sort of reflexively presumed to be autobiographical and were always looked through the lens of, of personal narrative and personal biography. And customs feels like it is, it's removed a conceptual frame and given us less of a polyvocal chorus and more of a unified voice and I'm wondering how this I and customs sits in relation to self for you. And I'm also curious about the motivations for the move, not just in relationship to look, but also what does this move afford you? What power does it allow you to wield as a, mm-hmm. as a language maker? And, and what were the attractions of changing the voice for your second book? I guess I'll start with the attractions um, and this idea of the power that it enables me to to wield. Uh, it's not exactly how I thought about it. I think I thought about it more as um, the powers that I am able to diagnose in each mode um, and how those necessarily shift. So you're absolutely right that look is more um, polyvocal uh, but its nexus of power is also readily identifiable. It's the Department of Defense. It's the Department of Defense's dictionary that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with state-sponsored violence, particularly in the hands of the military, though that too is porous and kind of plays out in a number of actors and agents. Um, and in customs, I was thinking more about the kinds of psychic and interior pressures of power upon a single and seemingly readily identifiable I or self. The self for me in customs is personal, is partly autobiographical. I wouldn't trust any autobiography that I, I write. As a, as a, if I were a reader, I wouldn't trust it. I um, think I'm a little, um, uh, what do you call it? I don't know what this gesture is. Like these are kind of like raccoon hands or something, you know, like I, I, I take, I take uh, freely and readily, you know, from other stories and, and snippets of, of, of story that 
that feel somehow truer to me um, around what I'm trying to communicate um, and would probably not, you know, pass like a, a New Yorker profiles, like fact checkers, you know, account of my life. Um, the self in customs feels more like a self that is um, uh, behind the self or a self that is harder to kind of locate that exists and could have perhaps only existed fully in its mother tongue, you know, and will never, will never exist in its mother tongue. Um, I do, yes, mean something about, you know, my own like Farsi fluency here, um, but that's really just the, I guess that's kind of like the, the artifact, the material wrapping of something that I'm, I'm investigating, which to me feels more, maybe uh, I bristle at using the word spiritual because I don't feel right in using it yet, but feels a little bit more beyond the, the language that I have access to. Um, I was influenced by, and I was thinking about, and, and one of the poems here kind of looks at, um, for example, the eye that's used in Robert Hayden's American Journal, um, which is this kind of persona of like an, an alien that lands in this, in this like American land and is trying to report back to the counselors about the aliens that, you know, are being beheld here. Um, and, and like more ironically about like Montesquieu's Persian letters, again, that kind of alien self that is, that is, um, bewildered and displaced and kind of re relatively scornful of the land that it finds itself in, in my case, um, and is perhaps imagining a future or a past to which it is kind of reporting all these findings to. Um, so that's certainly a large part of the, I would say, especially like the first part. And then the, the book kind of evolves from there into, into, shapes that are perhaps like more difficult for me to name or locate, but I'm happy to do so. Yeah. yeah. Well, in your bomb interview with Alina, which I'll definitely point everybody to because it's, it's wonderful. Thanks. You say, um, for me, the why of poetry has become the reason revolution must happen to begin with. It's no longer the conditions that make revolution inevitable, but what's waiting for us on the other side of it that required me to be more vulnerable. Removing the conceptual frame was an act of that allowed vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And in your acknowledgments, you end with a thank you to fear. You say, thank you, fear. That's enough now. And I, I wondered if these two were related. The removing of this third thing as a frame, the dictionary from the Department of Defense, the vulnerability perhaps of a first-person address, and the fear possibly of that sort of speaking. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, probably a lot of what I'm about to describe is uh, absolutely not unusual and is a anxiety of first book publishing and, and all that kind of stuff anyway, which is there's this, you know, a strong sense I felt of having to uh, prove myself, right? Or, and prove my, um, intelligence and intention and consideration and learnedness and, and all those things and, and having, you know, a kind of doubled reaction to the, to the book or to look in particular, which was either that without this conceptual frame, there, there were no poems worth 
worthwhile in the book, right? Or the conceptual frame itself was a gimmick and was just so, was too easy. Um, and I mean, I, I think look itself is an answer to that first challenge, you know? Um, and then with customs, as I began, I had a more conceptual frame. I thought I was gonna do another documentary text. You know, I was looking at state of deportation cases. I was like looking at the process one undergoes to become a naturalized citizen here. I was looking at what these documents might reveal around the values of this nation and, and um, what is asked of like immigrant bodies and, and comfort composure in order to kind of um, reify those values. Um, but I got uh, very um, frustrated working with that mode again, because I think for me, as interested as I am in, in concept, um, I think ultimately its charge is like, here's an idea that was had here's a mode of framing and reading that was offered. Here's a mode that can be adopted by anyone at this point. It is not really my, my job um, to read every document to you in this manner anymore, right? If I have faith in the concepts, then the concepts can exist beyond the writer. It, can, it exists beyond the artist at that point. And um, I think there would be a tremendous amount of ego actually involved in trying to reread every document with like my particular moral and ethical goggles on, you know? Um, and at some point I have to kind of just trust that the, the poems exist as I believe them to exist, which is like a mode of reading that anyone can take up um, and practice. I think too, partly like being in the pandemic and, and being in this isolation of the pandemic, and being in the noise of the Trump regime, which as far as I'm concerned is um, really, um, you know, this might be unfair, but it does feel marginally different from uh, the regimes that preceded it and the ones we're in now, um, but it certainly was louder in a lot of ways. Um, and when, when things get loud around, around me about certain things, you know, um, I don't quite find the need to diagnose it in my poetry anymore. Um, and so uh, I turned instead toward the more difficult thing, um, which were, was the conversation that I've kind of pretty much denied myself thus far because my poetry has been so top down and has been so materially minded and has had such an agenda. And it's not that I'm agendaless you know, or I'm apolitical by any means anymore. It's just that my um, notions of like what politically committed poetry in my hands in 2021, 2022 looks like feels very different to me than it did in, in 2010, for example. I mean, your, your comment about the marginal difference. I, I remember when you were first on the show um, and we were talking about Obama at the mm -hmm. time in, in a similar way, like, um, I'm thinking of, for instance, yesterday, Biden's announcement that he's taking half of the frozen assets of Afghanistan and giving them to 200 Americans who are family members of 9-11 when over half of the people are in acute hunger and 9 million are already experiencing famine, that it's going to 200 people. That isn't a 
that doesn't seem like that's a divergence from the norm Mm -mm. either. Um, Though it seems loud, like it it seems like it's happened in a way, like in broad Mm -hmm. daylight in a way that maybe in the past and maybe pre-Trump, it it would have been massaged differently Mm. or happened in, in the night. I wish I could pull up actual, you know, news stories about it and look more closely at the language because I wonder how much, I wonder if it feels more loud than before or than, you know, under Obama or, or if it is just as simple as there is a greater kind of, uh, and always present, maybe like liberal trust in this, in these Democrat moments, at least, you know, in the late 20th century and 21st century, um, that, that almost like undoes the, the, the basic reading that exists or something, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we quiet it down or something in the course of our reading. Um, and then at certain points it becomes really difficult for, for some of us to, to quiet it, quiet it down or to see it otherwise. Um, so I'm not particular. I'm not too sure about this, but yeah. And I and you know, for me, I think it was it was a funny thing that look comes out in the Trump era when really it was written in the Obama era, and it feels to me like a deeply like Obama Biden era book actually in response um, around what is and what is not looked at um, and why. Well, I I loved your conversation, which happened a long time ago now with Eileen Miles about about look and about your shared love of film and the visual and how Eileen Miles saw the two O's in look as spectacles or as binoculars. (laughs) And you've mentioned before that you could have imagined being a filmmaker if you were better at collaborating with others. And and (laughs) given your love of image, the way you see poetry as observing and attending to what is observed, you've even contemplated just having every book you write be another book called Look. Um, so thinking of looking, you've said that the gaze of the second book is one gaze, one person looking from their subject position, looking from the margins toward the metropole. And in your, your Paris review conversation, also from years back now, you say, I'm thinking of Edward Said's idea of the exilic intellectual pursuit, the artistic presence continually outside questioning and speaking back to whatever supposed here or we or now we've created a nomadic presence or a mind consistently on the run preventing these political moments from calcifying and later you say again talking about the exilic intellectual it is to stand outside of and look into and constantly question and interrogate the collectives that exist. So, so thinking of this and thinking of a person looking from the margins to the metropole makes me think of something else that Edward Said himself said in an interview in a discussion about home belonging in exile that he gave for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, um, where he declared presumably at least half tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think entirely so. Quote, 
I am the last Jewish intellectual, the only true follower of Adorno, which, which makes me think that what he is saying is that there is some vantage point, some way toward diagnosis of the center that can only be made from the margins, and, and that beyond the influence that Adorno had on Said's thought, that perhaps it wasn't a coincidence that there were so many vital philosophical thinkers that were Jewish in the early to mid-20th century, whether the ones from North Africa like Derrida and Hélène Sixou and Edmond Jabez, or Benjamin Adorno and Arendt in Europe, because they were the unassimilatable marginal figure, or as Emile Sioran called them, failure on the move. Um, but here Said, in speaking to uh, an Israeli readership, um, was himself speaking from a similar position, as the displaced and thrown out, and perhaps is claiming the diagnostic powers of the margin and speaking to and diagnosing the metropole. Um, I guess this is my long way of asking you to think or talk with us more about the exilic gaze toward mm -hmm. the center that I think is the gaze of customs um, more so than look. Yeah, uh, that was beautiful. Um, you know, as you were talking, I, I, I realized that I, I have this um, line and customs in the last poem that I kind of, I almost say the inverse, but now I'm, I, maybe I can take some time to try to articulate how I think it's actually saying the same thing, which is that um, I say that a poet, a poet is a fixed position most cannot stand to be in for long. And I think it has to do with a commitment to its unfixedness, in fact, and, and its um, absolute isolation um, and constant movement and um, a willingness to, I mean, a willingness, maybe some of us are, are, are thrust into it and so are forced to develop this willingness, you know, and maybe some of us can just adopt it, but to accept only like the briefest awnings as, as shelters that we maybe step into, step beneath, exchange a few words, and then kind of keep moving and are, and are in fact, um, you know, escorted back out of the Republic, so to speak, right? Um, to, to keep moving and ask, ask our questions elsewhere. Uh, I think that there is something about the exilic stance that says, to you know, whomever is being addressed that whatever it is that they are considering is not enough, that they've left out entire worlds, that, that, that um, they have left out the awareness that they have left out entire worlds, in fact, you know, and, if, and it would be impossible to, to name the content of the entire worlds, but it is important that somebody keep reminding us mm. of what is being excluded um, and what is not being seen and what is beyond the walls of the kingdom, so to speak. And, and, um, and who is not found in the room. Um, and not as a way of really uh, diversifying the room or making it more hospitable or open and accepting of its strangers and of its guests, but um, hopefully, you know, I guess the asymptote I would approach, which is the impossible one and, and probably ultimately undesirable 
um, is the absolute like obliteration of the room, you know, and of shelter itself, you know, and, and whatever it is that, that tries to have us hold on and guard um, against change, against upheaval, against strangers, um, against um, being humbled, you know. Um, well, let me, let me um, extend this question with, okay. with a question from uh, Claire Schwartz, the poet and poetry editor. Um, so I'm reading on her behalf to you. Um, hi, Salaz. I'm lucky <laughs> who's also joining you uh, as a gray wolf poet soon. Yes. Yeah. I can't um, wait. August. I'm lucky to have spent the past months with customs to feel unsettled by the violence that empire makes customary. And in that unsettled state to become differently attuned to the little musics of otherwise. I've been wondering about a perceived movement between your texts Look is so frontally concerned with vision, and in particular with the camera as a technology of empire, while the opening section of customs is, too, comprised of many poems that name an engagement with the meanings of seeing. This engagement feels to me of a different quality, though perhaps the way the passage of time can change the quality of light in a single room. I heard you in conversation with Douglas Kearney say that documentary is no longer as apt a term as it once was to describe your poetics and where the camera makes a particular claim to truth of its document. It strikes me that this movement might also register a shift in how you consider vision. Can you speak then to what the practice of revision and, it, and then in parentheses re dash vision means for you and your work, how perhaps the poems or the living between them has instructed you to see or to see seeing differently. Hmm. I'm really moved by that question. Um, I mean, I, I, interviews like this are such a gift because this very lonely conversation that I'm having is externalized and, and gets to be shared. And, um, you know, so I thank you both for it. Um, I had a kind of um, material faith in the world, you know, I wouldn't say faith exactly, but it was a, it's a Marxist sensibility, you know, and like what is, is, and, and, and frankly, that's enough, you know, and that's plenty too. Um, and um, my job is to name it as accurately and honorably, I don't, by which I don't mean like, you know, in celebration or as this kind of, you know, um, but as a, you know, I guess like lovingly or truly as possible. Um, and to kind of, you know, just keep challenging and agitating against the lies of language, like language itself is a lie ultimately, right? And I'm just trying to kind of like keep it jostling enough and like uh, to, to say something almost true or near true. Um, so it's easy to kind of just like look up at the world in front of me and then write what I was saying, you know, or to like, open up a YouTube video and describe what I saw or read a document and record it. And 
you know, I, I called, you know, for myself, I, I, I felt, and for a while I was working on a short story in the voice of a court reporter, a stenographer, you know, I feel very much like that in addition to like filmmaking, that's probably closer to my, to my practice. And I think that's still true. I think it's in terms of, I do feel like a slightly more complicated, like recording device for something that is actually outside of myself. Um, it's just that um, I grew less interested in, in the material world around me because my um, like heart just shattered, you know? Um, the last trip I made to Iran in 2014 is the one that um, a lot of the, the middle section called Without Which is really based on um, and my entire sense of uh, belonging tied to a material place um, evaporated. Like that, that, that it had, that there was any possibility of that ever happening again, you know, that there would be at some point a kind of return, a space I would return to and a home I would enter. And upon that entering, I would finally arrive. Um, I knew that was done. Um, for me. And so for a long time, my, my entire sense of language shattered because my entire sense of just desire shattered, you know, you can't write without it. Um, and then, you know, but desire is like really kind of tenacious, you know, like it, like it came back, you know, and it, and I, it's like, it just wasn't tied to place anymore, you know? Um, and it wasn't tied to physical shelter anymore. And I don't know that it was even, it's not even a sheltered feeling for me. So I'm trying to look at that. And in some, in some parts of the book, I'm, I'm trying to name the actual visual landscape of that, you know, as I've experienced it. Um, and in other parts, it's really, you know, what happens, yes, what happens to a documentary impulse when, and, or what happens to a camera's eye when it no longer looks out? You know, it's not even looking in, it's like looking um, just just beyond whatever this is, you know, and trying to catch that instead. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what I've found myself and my gaze entering more. And I think a lot of that is ear work now, not just eye work. Oh, interesting. Sense, yeah, no, I, I want to um, talk more about that rupture in 2014, but... But before we do, I think we should hear some poems. Um, sure. Yeah. Could could we hear um, he too, and then social skills training? Mm -hmm. He too. Upon my return to the U.S., he asks my occupation, teacher. What do you teach? Poetry. I hate poetry. The officer says. I only like writing where you can make an argument. Anything he asks, I must answer. This too he likes. I don't tell him he will be in a poem where the argument will be anti-American. I place him here, puffy, pink, ringed in plexi, pleased with his own wit and spittle, saving the argument, I am let in, I am let in until. And uh, now I'll read social skills training. Social skills training. 
studies suggest how may I help you officer is the single most disarming thing to say and not what's the problem. Studies suggest it's best the help reply, my pleasure and not no problem. Studies suggest it's best not to mention problem in front of power, even to say there is none. Gloria Steinem says women lose power as they age and yet the loudest voice in my head is my mother. Studies show the mother we have in mind isn't the mother that exists. Mine says, what the fuck are you crying for? Studies show the baby monkey will pick the fake monkey with fake fur over the furless wire monkey with milk without contest. Studies show to negate a thing is to think it anyway. I'm not sad. I'm not sad. Studies recommend regular expressions of gratitude and internal check-ins. Enough, the wire mother says. History is a kind of study. History says we forgave the executioner before we mopped the blood, we asked. Lord judge, have I executed well? Studies suggest, yes. What the fuck are you crying for, officer? The wire mother teaches me to say. While studies suggest, Somaz, have you thanked your executioner today? We've been listening to poet Somaz Sharif read from her second collection, Customs, from Grey Wolf Press. So coincidental to preparing for today, I've been slowly reading Dion Brand's A Map to the Door of No Return, Notes on Belonging. And I feel like a lot of its animating questions have been communicating with yours. Um, And I wanted to ask you about exile in relation to belonging for you. Uh, First, I'm going to read one of the more famous lines from Brand's book. Quote, I am not nostalgic. Belonging does not interest me. I had once thought that it did until I examined the underpinnings. One is misled when one looks at the sails and majesty of tall ships instead of their cargo, unquote. And in reading Brand, I I find myself envious of Brand's ability to dismiss the yearning for belonging. Because when I I think of my own life, I have this, I, I would say, almost ridiculously strong yearning to belong. I've never felt, I've never experienced it isn't a lost thing. I, I didn't have a, a belonging that then went away, but I've always felt like it existed out there, quote unquote, out there, but that I just hadn't found it. So there's a lot of ways I've tried to like say, search for a community of my quote unquote people for that possibly mythical place where I am, where I fit where I feel seen, where um, my life and the customs that I share with others cohere in, in some sense of wholeness. Um, and I feel like I recognize something of both of these sentiments in your latest collection. Uh, I, I feel like we see the anguish and the anger in you that feels connected to the possibility that if your family had never had to leave Iran, where you would have been born into and lived in the center, so to speak, that your life would have made more sense. It would have cohered into a whole. Um, and I also, on the other hand, th- think of, of what you just described around uh, your visit in 2014, which was the way you prefaced your reading when you read it Ten House a couple years ago that a longing or desire that you held onto 
which was central to you in certain ways evaporated as a result of that visit. And you said in that introduction to your reading that you lost language uh, and the ability to write and a certain kind of despair. And I'm curious to hear, I guess, looking back seven years later, what that breaking from a longing for belonging, if that's what it is, um, what it means for you now in relationship to to writing and self, um, and also what your thoughts are on the original longing, um, the belief that you had, the belief you had that you weren't living the life you were supposed to live, which which appears throughout customs, um, the one you were supposed to have, um, and the loss of that, and what your feelings are, are about. I mean, is is the yearning for wholeness attached to home is that something benign or is that something as artists that we should be actively um, Mm. wrestling against I don't think it's benign I absolutely don't think it's benign I think it's very dangerous actually Um, I think home is dangerous I think home is dangerous I think the idea of maintaining and and um uh, establishing um, a home um, is increasingly dangerous, uh, maybe even um, because I do I do believe I do agree with what Brand is saying here, or what I hear Brand saying in this in this excerpt. Um, at one point, it becomes kind of impossible to see what underpins belonging, right, or various ideas of belonging. Um, pointing to a very particular kind um, here. And, and also, you know, we can, we can use it to describe um, any establishment of a we that necessitates the establishment of a they, right? Um, that said, it doesn't extinguish, you know, and, um, and thank God for that. You know, like that um, I get to kind of move back and forth between these longings. I thought it was gone forever. You know, I thought I, I mean, I really thought, I thought, but, but now I realize that, you know, and I told, I think I was talking to David Baker about it very early on. I don't even know that he'd remember this, but I said, you know, I thought I had lost every, like, I, I thought the major losses had happened, you know, and, uh, and then I realized there's a whole other level of, of loss possible, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, just you wait, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and I think I'm back to that again, yeah. that 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 kind of ease around it or something of like, OK, now now my losses are mapped. Now I know where they are and I've made peace with it. Yeah. And on my good days, I actually say that the place I am now is the true place. And like anybody who's not here is actually a fool. You know, um, they're just not seeing the world as it should be seen. They're not aware of how um, truly exiled they are, you know, even as they're operating within a center as they as they see it. Um, and then um, I've come to like on my worst days where I still have some hope around it. I don't mean like the absolute like abject despair <laughs> that happens that has almost no intellectual kind of, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that intellectually, but sometimes I think, you know, it's the lamentable space, you know, it's not necessarily the truer space, um, space of lament and 
thereby the space of song and of music, you know, actually to go back to the kind of the Said quote, right? Um, and that's enough too. Um, but I feel like, you know, I get asked questions and I, you know, I know, I know I've heard you have conversations with writers around this question too. And, you know, but, and I still don't know how to answer them, which is like, is poetry itself a home? Is language a home? Like, where is this home? You know, um, and, you know, on the flip side, like, is it a site of resistance? Like, is it, you know, just the idea of like poetry as a site, a poem as a site of something or as a, as a, and it's not, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's absolutely not, you know. Um, so I don't find it particularly useful to try to make it one. Mm. But what I'm trying to make of it, because it is a space, right? Like what I'm trying to make of it, I haven't quite, I mean, I guess, I guess that's, that's particularly the place that I won't ever name. I'll just have to keep like trying to enact over and over in my writing. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking about regarding home and exile was the way you've talked about your experience of your family coming to Los Angeles and living within the Iranian community there, um, which is the largest one outside of Iran. So you could imagine generically that maybe that could be a place you would find wholeness or home. <laughs> uh, but, but instead you found yourself ostracized within the community, partly due to questions of class. Um, there was a, a lot of wealth uh, in contrast to your family and partly due to a community that you described as striving to assimilate, which your own parents as ex-activists were, didn't share. Um, and you've mentioned that, like in so many communities in the U.S., the, the prevalence of anti-Blackness and anti-Arab sentiments um, were prevalent, and that when you went to this Iranian uh, feminist conference uh, where Angela Davis spoke, and she referred to the audience as women of color, that it was a moment of recognition across nation and race, um, a recognition that you desired. And it, it made me think of a an essay by Christina Sharp called Lose Your Kin, um, where she says, quote, one must be willing to be more than uncomfortable. One must be willing to be on the outside. One must refuse to repair a familial rift on the bodies cast out as not kin. Slavery is the ghost in the machine of kinship. Kinship relations structure the nation. Capitulation to their current configurations is the continued enfleshment of that ghost. Refuse reconciliation to ongoing brutality. Refuse to feast on the corpse of others. Rend the fabric of the kinship narrative. Imagine otherwise. Remake the world. Some of us have never had any other choice. I guess that what you've already just said about home somehow feels connected to this, this call. Mm -hmm. So that moment for me where Angela Davis uses women of color, I think was so kind of astonishing to me as like a 15 or 16 year old um, Iranian American who is in conversation predominantly with like leftist Iranians that are politically minded, but don't have the same language around race and gender and stuff that we we might have and and are and 
you know, have to develop here in the U.S., right? Um, not that we don't have to in Iran, we have to there too, but, you know, it's, uh, I find myself having and, and growing more fluent in and along a different track than, than, they, than they did or they would. The term, I was drawn to it because it is, a, I, as I felt it then, and what still draws me to it, so not necessarily it itself anymore, is the idea of an actual ideological solidarity that might exist, and that 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 can be, that can be, an identity. Actually, you know, I think that a lot of um, um, the kind of identity narratives that I grew up in within university systems here in the U.S. Right. Um, have to do with like what you were born, the sociological realities of that 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 birth and what that means, um, and uh, kind of like almost a quite often like a depoliticization of that in some way, right? Like um, it's it, as in it, it almost seems to be happening alongside an effort to kind of remove, like alongside this effort in the US where like the word ideology itself is a bad word, right? Like it's a it's bad, the idea of having like a shared belief system or something, even though that's, you know, that's what we're operating under all the time, right? Yeah. Um, but we can, we can maybe collectively also come up with ideas around which we gather. And for me that, that women have, like it was this sense of like any kind of organizing space or classroom I was in with its syllabus or whatever it might be that that said not you not yet you know that that the optional struggle or the 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 strata that seemed um, beside the point or beyond the point and not belonging here you know we'll get to that later right like we'll get to we'll get to gender later we'll get to class later we'll get to like let's do the real work here first and then everything else will work out like to have that actually be a site of identity that one adopts um that is tied to one's positionality yes but not not exclusively either you know um i think that's kind of what i was what i was drawn to and i think that um this ideology i'm i'm pointing to to is a kind of um a commitment to a um an obliteration of the um, kinships that are decided by by birth, you know, um, and not having them, in my case, be the entirety of of uh, my being with with people, you know, and who I I am alongside. Yeah. I mean, what I, what makes custom so compelling in that regard is it's it's complicated because we also see your the rupture of you speaking in English and and and, and wistful might not be the right word, but but the this the desire and the ache to to have <laughs> Farsi have, have being your your active language of communication and art making, um, and then making um, art with a language you didn't choose um, through the accidents of, or maybe not even accidents, but the, the political uh, things that have happened between uh, Iran and the United States. To, and to me, that's, that's really the naming of that, of that longing and that particular grief and the realities of it 
are a necessary or essential part to whatever comes next, you know, which is, um, well, we'll see, you know, as it, as it happens. But uh, if my, if, if it really was in the end about Farsi, for example, right. Or if it was really this belief in had I had that, you know, and like the, I think I would do everything in my power at this point to go back. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I would, I would probably be trying to write in Farsi at this point, or I would probably be trying to, to do as much translation as possible. You know, you use translation in my, in my bio. It's the thing that I've talked to myself out of recently, actually, Mm -hmm. or more recently um, in part because it was such a, it ended up proving to be one of the more private experiences that I've had in language. And um, I haven't been able to come up with the language for why I would do it publicly, if that makes sense in this particular case. So I think you're right that it is complicated. It is both of those things. And it's like, I, I have to keep going back to it. Well, let's stay with with questions of of language or bring more of these questions of exile and belonging into language. Um, I like when Alina in, in your bomb conversation pointed out how belonging links longing and being. Um, and in a panel you had for Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi's forum, uh, Literatures of Annihilation, Exile, and Resistance, a panel with uh, Salwa Ismail and Roger Reeves called political violence and the literary subject, you brought up how there's a word in Farsi that means is and was at the same time, and that this is-was suggests the ongoingness of the was. But also within the collection itself, with the hyper-enjammed poem America, or the, the frequent syntactical thickets in poems with lines like, without which I cannot name, without which is my life, or the unresolved open-ended brackets in the poem called Without Which, which have lines like, of is the thing without which I would not be. And, uh, and those brackets remind me also of, of Anne Carson, the way Anne Carson handled the, hmm. her Sappho translations of the, with the irretrievable absences of what can't, couldn't be, retrieved um all this to say that returning to your your preface to your tin house reading you also said that instead of writing out of this condition that you faced after your visit in iran you decided to write into how this condition changed your relationship to language and i wondered if if you could speak a little bit to that um the way you wrote into a certain loss of language and how that affected language. I think uh, it affected language in a lot of the, the ways that you pointed out so um, generously, which, you know, it, it, it broke it and it broke it into its smallest um, parts and fragments and, and um, really kind of, um, you know, I found myself like isolating and, and, and obsessing around words of, of relation, words that really have no, no sense of their own outside of like whatever relation they might describe when used properly. Um, and what happens when you lose, when you lose the actual content of relation? Um, and what might you be left with to describe at that point? Um, 
trying to remember the first parts of this question because there was something I wanted to say toward it. About the is-was, perhaps? Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, I, was, I was thinking, you know, the flash of thought I had around that. So I, I'm, I was pointing to this um, tense called the relational path that's used in, in Farsi. And, and like, there's one example of, of its construction, which is Buddha asked and Buddha asked more, really would translate to was in English, but, but uh, more literally is, is was. Um, and um, so much of my um, writing was kind of like, um, you know, at the risk of using a very charged word that, 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 you know, I'm supposed to be like allergic to, um, you know, obviously nostalgic um, and, and driven by this like, rear facing kind of gaze and and there's that sense of when you you know one goes back to iran for example right like one doesn't go to iran one goes back to iran and one expects that that iran will be some some fixed relic of the past that one can kind of a museum of experience that one can enter mm -hmm. as a diasporic figure to kind of um marvel and touch the things and you know feel at home and at ease and then one gets to leave again and you know iran better stay the same the whole time that one's away right um i didn't realize how deeply i was doing that you know i didn't know that i was quite doing that um and um and so that was gone and yet as a writer, I am not a future, like I don't really look at the future. I'm not an I'm not a writer of the imagination in that way. I'm not world making, I'm not pitching us toward anything really, you know, I think time for me is like one one thing always, you know. And I'm probably more horrified at how quickly we kind of um and how forcefully we try to say past is past um here uh and everywhere, I guess. Um again, that sense of yeah, the, the space of that or the location of that or what I'm trying to describe in that feels very different. Um, and I think one of the lucky things that happened or one of the lucky kind of contrarian things that happened was, um, and this is a dangerous part of having work out in the public and like being a quote unquote immigrant voice in the, in the US and, and like hearing feedback and hearing your life come back to you and hearing, and then hearing what an audience, an American audience or US audience might want from you and might want you to perform and what performance they will project upon you, even if you're not close to it, right? right. Um, I found myself, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, the word Shiraz appears a few times, like, like the places appear a few times, but I was also like, I don't wanna, like in English, that's all they'll hear is the place and they won't hear the, the grammar behind it or the way I, I'm, I'm, I am behind, not I, the way of being I'm trying to actually describe. Um, and so that was a useful challenge in this case, I guess, actually, in a, in a way that my language broke was how do I describe the breaking of language, but not describe it solely through, again, like my grandmother's house being sold, you know? Yeah. No, um, maybe in, in light of that, we, we could talk about the series called Dear Olive. Um, mm -hmm. At first, because the first Dear Olive poem is has got a David Goliath inverted inversion, and the second one had the execution of uh, Ethel Rosenberg. And because the spelling of Olive 
is the typical way you'd see it for the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I, I wondered whether the poems were addressed to to a Jew or Jews. Hmm. But of course, Aleph is also the first letter of, of the Arabic and Farsi languages, though often spelled differently in English. And you've oh, talked- Oh, interesting. How are they spelled in English? I think, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think Arabic is typically A-L-I-F. Interesting. Okay. I'm not 100% sure on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I think you can write them anyway. Yeah. That that's transliterated in a way that's close, <laughs> close to the way you'd say it. But I, for some reason, there's these different traditions around the way these are spelled. Um, but you've also talked more generally that the epistolary form is the is perhaps the form of exile or the form for exile. Um, so I guess talk talk to us about the sequence and and whether these letters of or for exile are letters to language. Um, are these letters to a person? Are these letters um, to language? And if so, is there something about the the first, letter of Farsi or the first letter of Arabic or the first letter of Hebrew that, that um, would be the letter you would want to address? I mean, I do think, I do think they're letters to language. I do think they're letters to origin, um, to the beginning, the beginnings of language, the first letters of the alphabet. These happen to be shared alphabets. Um, I was thinking of Farsi, to be honest. Um, the inversion for me happens um, exactly kind of as I describe it, which is, you know, and it, and the, there's that David and Goliath flip and, and, you know, I've also come to understand David as like a, you know, a figure of kind of Palestinian resistance, obviously, like there's that the collapse between the, the stones and, and being thrown by David and, and, um, by Palestinians and the intifadas, various intifadas. Um, and, um, and when I went, to the book itself and, and read the story and I and I read Goliath and I was like, well, I mean, what did he do? I don't understand. What this is, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's really that simple, you right. know, like it's, it's really the it's again that this. Um, the villain ended up not being as villainous as I as I imagined it would be. Um, and and I found myself identifying with it far, far more. And. Um, I. Um, you know, the Rosenbergs are kind of like a foundational, I, she, Ethel in particular appears a number of times in the book, um, coming from a nation and a culture that is understood in the US through these, um, through the lens of like dictatorship and state repression and all those things. Like, I, I find it useful to kind of point out where the US has committed, you know, these these crimes and, and to, to remind us that really, um, it's how all states are. I mean, this is just really what a state is and what a state does, right? right? If you if you threaten a state and it doesn't take much to threaten a state and it is illegal to do so in 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 earnest here, even, you know, right? Um, this is the fate that awaits you, you know, and that's treason, it's apostasy, mm. you know, it's like the the gravest sin, period, you know. Um and um so I think that's kind of what I was, what I was thinking about, or why, why Ethel kept appearing um, in my poems throughout. Too, um, I was thinking too of um, Emily Dickinson's uh, like master letters, you know, and I was thinking of, um, 
yes, addressed to a kind of, you know, I don't, and for that reason, I don't want to spend too much time naming it, but unnameable or unnamed origin. Um, Which made me think of when I, I, I'm imagining this is probably shared across the three languages, but in Hebrew, Aleph is silent. You know, God speaks the world, the world into being. So the first, Mm -hmm. the first letter in the Torah is the second letter in the alphabet because it's the first one that makes a sound and Aleph is the in-breath before the Mm. speech it's it's beyond or before language so it really is the origin letter of Mm. not just because it's first but because it can't be spoken wow yeah i mean i don't know if that's true in farsi or uh, or Mm. in i have no i I mean yeah yeah I, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, the, the texts are shared, so, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could we hear the first two, Olive, Dear Olive Bones? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Dear Aleph, like Ovid, I'll have no last word. This is what it means to die among barbarians. Bar, bar, bar was how the Greeks heard our speech, sheep, beasts, and so we became barbarians. We make them reveal the brutes they are by the things we make them name. David, they tell me, is the one one should aspire to. But ever since I first heard them say Philistine, I've known I am Goliath if I am anything. Dear Aleph, you're correct. Every nation hates its children. This is a requirement of statehood. This an empathy. Empathy means laying yourself down in someone else's chalk lines and snapping a photo. A Chrysler with four bullet holes in the rear passenger door just drove by calmly signaling before it turned. Oh, Mrs. Evans, you're such a wonderful woman, said supposedly Ethel Rosenberg to the woman who walked her to the chair. It was empathy on Evans's part, love on Ethel's. I am a wonderful woman, more often than I care to admit, we are going to have our first woman president. Been listening to Solma Sharif read from Customs. Well, let, let's uh, let's spend a little more time with language and power, and the way you engage with it in poetry. In the most general sense, I'm thinking of this great conversation you had with Evie Shockley for the Radcliffe Institute. She brought up that Sonia Sanchez used form to manage her grief when writing about her brother dying of AIDS. And you said that it was the opposite for you, that if you realize that a form allows you to tolerate something better, then you want to stop using the form. That for you, form was power enacted, and that in a sense, you're working against language. Um, to create something new. So in that light, you're rarely using inherited forms. You've used non-accentual syllabics uh, as a way to work against expected harmonies in English. And thinking back to the beginning of our discussion about removing the conceptual frame of look and creating an exilic personal eye on the page, can you speak to some of the animating questions or maybe the things you discovered through writing this way that relate to power and language 
and perhaps for that matter, to English and Farsi. Hmm. I guess most simply that they're one of the things I've come come up against and and do be, do believe more and more that um, do I believe that? You know, I want to say that it's inescapable. I want to say that it's um, it's like a necessarily painful kind of um, cruel betrayal to try to render something in a poem. And that putting it to language, you know, and more politically, I think English in particular, you know, but maybe that's not fair, actually. You know, maybe this is larger than, than that. It's a problem quite larger than that. Though I think there is a problem particular to putting it in English that needs to be kind of unpacked. Um, is, um, to me, and in my practice, a necessarily kind of violent and exclusionary act, whether there is an obvious formal structure that I'm imposing upon the, the text or whether I'm moving in perceived kind of free verse, right? I know I know a lot of poets, and I and I love a lot of poets that um, enact freedom on the page and see the page as a site of freedom, you know. But you know, if it's like you know, no tears for the writer, no tears for the like, no freedom for the writer, no freedom for the reader, like it doesn't exist, you know. As in the the very the not only it doesn't exist for the it, as long as it doesn't exist outside, you know. I'm making like a gesture with my hand, like if it, it doesn't exist in the world, you know. Um, until liberation is actually present, whatever that actually may mean, you know, until it's over, whatever this is, um, it won't exist on the page, you know. Um, I need the writers who do enact it on the page because I do think it 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 can kind of point us toward, you know, way I don't know ways or you know some that work has to be done and my soul needs it, you know. But my own practice is. Um, as long as it is intolerable, it will be written intolerably, you know, and it will be experienced intolerably, you know, by the, by the reader. And um, if I feel that I am in a kind of toxic bath, every time I enter a workplace or something, you know, or every time I enter, you know, no offense to the faculty meetings I've been in, it's not that, you know, but it's just like these structures that we have to enter, right? Like, yeah. it, it's like, um, then then that's what the poem will do as well. And I and I put my faith in that diagnostic mode, you know. And I have found that in my own life, just by virtue of getting tired of naming the same things over and over and over, things in my life have changed. You know, they're very small. It's not, you know, but I do think that there is a I do think there's a possibility there. I think there's a possibility in fully and deeply inhabiting the poison that is. Well, I have another question for you from, from this time from performance artist and poet Fargo Tabaki. Um, hey. um, Hi Fargo. <laughs> well, he, he's going to, he's going to ask this question himself. Oh, great. Here we go. Marhaba Somaz. I'm sitting in deep gratitude, having been able to spend some time with customs. What a true gift it is for this book to be in the world. There are so many wonders I have around the book, but today I thought I'd ask you about civility. One of the things I understand customs to be doing is tracing 
the stultifying, neutralizing violence of civility as a ritualized set of performativities required in order to live as an American subject, beginning with the first poem, America, and continuing throughout the book to lurk within every potential intimacy or speech act. You've written before about the relationship between activism and the lyric, arguing that our political imaginations can benefit from the criticalities contained within our lyric ones. So I wanted to ask what you've learned about the rituals of American civility from the uncivilized lyric voice of this book, and vice versa, what the book's voice learned from your experience of these rituals. Thank you, as always, for your language and the better world that it makes possible. Oh, Okay. It's really great to hear your voice, Fargo. I'm going to try to do your question justice here. Um, you know, first of all, thanks for recognizing the lack of civility in this work. I don't think it's that, you know, necessarily pronounced, but I do think it's a I don't know, I feel kind of, there's a lot of seething in it, that's for sure. Um, I think I had greater faith at some point, um, and in parts of writing Look, but though not in the entirety of, of when I was writing Look around um, content, and that really what's missing are specifics and stories. And if we had these stories and if the stories were told through the lens of elegy, for example, like if, if, if lives are treated as grievable, you know, to use, you know, Butler's term, um, and those lives were named um, and like the concrete of their lives were brought in to this kind of lyrical space, some good would come, something would happen. I've discovered that the machine metabolizes all. Um, obviously I've been told this by many before. It's kind of like maybe it's a stove that we have to put our hands on ourselves. I don't know. Um, I don't have faith in nouns anymore. You know, I don't have faith in, in like the content of, of, of bills or policy or anything of actions um, necessary as they are as really being the thing that we need. Um, I think actually one of the main ways that civility plays out is through syntax and grammar. And as long as we are using, I've said this elsewhere, but I'll say it here, you know, because I do find myself surprised sometimes at poets that like certain poems. And, and I find myself wondering why it is that they're drawn to that poem. And are we reading different poems? And we probably are reading different poems, actually. And that's fine. Like, there's an excitement to that. There's a richness to that. But um, like as long as we use the, the kind of syntax that we use to describe, or they use, you know, the, this they can be self-selecting, it's fine. Um, they use to describe like Vienna, to describe, um, you know, Tehran or something. Um, they will love us and they will love our poems. Um, the jamming effect politically has to come on the level of syntax. I haven't figured out how to actually do that, you know, and maybe this is maybe this is just the limit of 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 the lyric itself um, that I'm kind of up against, and maybe it's act, asking too much of it. But that's the wall I've been hitting um, with this book, Fargo, um, and that's kind of the wall that I'm trying to break through with the next one. 
Well, let me extend Fargo's question or at least connect it to something else that it makes me think of. It's you, you, you gave a craft talk at 10 house called a talk against goodness. And, um, you begin with a non-white writer who says that as marginalized people, we need to focus on writing well, but then you go on to unpack what writing well really means in the context of a creative writing world that was originally funded into existence partially by the CIA or that a former president of the Poetry Foundation did U.S. intelligence counterinsurgency work in <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa. Um, what does it mean to write well when the project itself institutionally was funded in order to establish a sort of American cultural hegemony around the world. And ultimately you wonder how much our ideas of good poetry line up with notions of good behavior, of civility, of all sides matter. Um, in asking the question of whether a quote unquote good poem might be irreconcilable with the reckoning that we actually need to have, uh, which I think is connected to what some of what Fargo's asking and you've, you've already answered. And, and you quote June, June Jordan in that craft talk who said, if you make and keep my life horrible, then when I can tell the truth, it will be a horrible truth. It will not sound good or look good or God willing, feel good to you either. And then you, you proceed to look with skepticism at the various maxims you were taught regarding the qualities that make a poem good. Given that so many of the people listening are writers or art makers or aspiring writers and art makers, maybe we could just spend a moment to talk about some of those quote unquote good ways of writing that you, you are suggesting we should be suspicious of for these reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I want to say that um, I think that like the, the scholarship that, that, you know, um, Bennett and, and Spar and the number of people have done to kind of reveal the ways that the CIA has been involved and in, in funding and establishing our creative writing program has been great. And it also, you know, a necessary, right. And yet I don't know that we needed it in terms of I wish we could, and I think they, they are people who would. I just wish that we could presume that a literature is being written within a nation and in that nation's um, predominant language is a national project, you know, unless proven otherwise. You know, right now we have these kind of agencies and we can point to them and be like, see, this is how it lines up with, you know, but really what it is, is, is a writer is, um, without um, tremendous kind of uh, resistance to it, um, going to just be like kind of hegemonically consumed into this na national project, right? And, and uh, glorifying project, cultural project. So I did wanna just say that because um, I'm afraid I might ha you know, participate in, in making it too, um, there's that, it's like, it's kind of the danger of naming the DOD too. You know, a lot of, it, it, when I did look, um, I think a lot of people were able to think, oh, what a horrible thing they've done to language. Not, wow, I do this language all the time. You know, it, that's what it means to speak here in this nation, you know? Um, so I don't quite want that to happen in this conversation, but I think a lot of these um, 
kind of things we take for granted in the workshop, like it should be, it should be uh, sonorous and precise and it should show not tell and it should certainly not be didactic. It shouldn't um, stake a claim of any kind. It shouldn't make an argument, that's for sure, right? Or like it is the argument with the self, right? Not with the other, um, because that exists, right? Self and other exists. Um, you know, one can only show in a poem without telling what is shared in with that audience, for example, right? So it's already presuming a certain um, cultural common denominator that might not exist for, for all of us, right? For, for the rest of us, there's a, an amount of telling that's involved in order to just like communicate the basic content of our lives, for example, right? Obviously that's not the only part or limitation of show don't tell. I think the, the more dangerous part is that a poet in a poem does not make an argument. A poet in a poem does not uh, make a statement. A poet in a poem offers a space of uh, neg negative capability that a reader can kind of enter and contemplate for themselves this like, you know, complicated moral quandary or whatever. When in reality, there are certain things that just need to be told and need to be said and said simply and directly. And great poets have done it throughout time. Like actually, if we, you know, I don't, I, I'm allergic to using the, the language of great writing and greatness and all that. But if we, you know, find me, find me the great poets that didn't tell, you know. Um, and so we're creating entire generations of poets that are, are um, working in a mode that is, um, and I don't have anything against any of the component parts that I'm about to name. Um, I just think they're dangerous when they, they are presented as the best way forward for everyone. Um, working in a mo mode that is common, like commonly image-based, um, relies on empathy. That was the other thing. You couldn't, you couldn't um, be scornful toward anyone or anything, right? There are no enemies in a poem. Uh, everybody is complicit. Uh, and more and more, you have to kind of reveal your own complicity in whatever you say, which is like this... Uh, this kind of um, self-absolving liberal tick that has appeared in, in writing and in US literature in like the last 15 years or so. Um, and um, there shouldn't be uh, any kind of neat, or well, there, should, there could be an epiphany, right? There could be an epiphany, but there shouldn't necessarily be a neat and moral conclusion if that neat and moral conclusion is well let's stay with empathy for a minute too um because in the one of the dear olive poems you, you have this great the great line empathy means laying yourself down in someone else's chalk lines and snapping a photo and perhaps similarly elsewhere you say like i've decided is the cruelest word in the world a and you've talked about an allergy to similes and that they're often for you moments of ethical failure. So I, I would love just to spend another beat, not with the expectation that poems should be empathetic, but maybe questioning empathy in its own right, which is, seems to be what you're you're uh, suggesting with that line. Yeah, I hate empathy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think empathy has its uses, and its uses are, you know, uh, self-preservation. Right. Like, yes, like maybe maybe in every interaction we don't 
appear in completely porous open you know ways and what it is is like I will experience you for a moment in a way that I can enter and exit and still go grocery shopping undisturbed you know it's it's uh it's an emotional it's um kind of like and it's used in um workshops often and I found myself like in 2014 like using it in a workshop for a, somebody's poem and I was like you know what actually I'm going to stop like the word I mean here is love like there needs to be love in this part and there isn't love and like why is it that empathy feels like the okay thing to you were to use here and not and not love and then I was like well what does empathy kind of um allow and it allows the absolute and unhindered continuance of what is you know mm. and um I'm very much against that you know <laughs> I'm very I'm very much for ending that um I think the only way to that is is actually love um I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you back to yourself because I just uh -oh. love this. <laughs> no, this is, I hate empathy. <laughs> no, no, not that. But um, when you say you've said that empathy is the language of the grant application in the boardroom, that that empathy, as you just said, could step you could step out of and into a life like a therapist can open and close the door, and that love is none of these things. Love can get you fired. Love is ungradable, um, and replacing the word empathy with love will reveal the lie, which I love. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for loving it. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's, um, let's hear the, the poem Patronage. And then I, afterwards, I, I want to sort of take some of these questions into, um, a, into a, a different place around being a poet in the world. Okay, okay. There was another part of your question I wanted to say something about, but I've forgotten. Okay. Let me oh, we were talking about similes. Uh, I will just say similes quickly for me is this kind of, um, and, and in, in general, like it's, it's, it's not unlinked to my resistance toward the world word equality, for example, or whatever insistence on, on kind of, similarity or sameness as the only way of being in relation to each other, uh, a fear of difference that, that kind of undergirds both of those things. And um, the ways that similes often used to argue or elevate the value of, you know, one or the other side of the, of the simile, um, to say this is just as good as that, or this is just as beautiful as that thing, um, and the th not allow the thing itself to be enough. Um, I find that um, particularly cruel and um, often an ethical failure and a political one, to be honest, and a, and an, a failure of solidarity quite often. And um, I think I'm particularly sad about it or bent out of shape about it because so much of my life exists in it, too, you know, of, of trying to piece together some kind of a of a life wherein I am, again, I'm not to go, you know, to go back to belonging, I guess. I'm actually in and of. Um, I have to do it through like more often than I would like. Uh, patronage. They say willingness is what one needs to succeed. They say one needs to succeed. Our poets do not imagine a screaming audience 
Our poets are used to padding, vinyl on the foldable chairs, bookshelves on casters moved aside to make space for them, a world polite for their words, a well-behaved, a world's behavior malformed, and they step in as one steps into a nursery and quiet calms the tantrum, attempts not to wake the sleeping, the milk drunk and burped babe, our poets coo and beg to be placed in a large room. Prize ring, bull ring, lion through the ring of flames. Poets convinced they are ringmaster when it is with big brooms and bins, in fact, they enter to clear the elephant scat. There was an inlet I pulled over once to watch the sunset, which was still another hour or so away, the light just low enough there to begin to change. I should have stayed, I should have stayed. A life of idol with money doing the work, a life beholden but bestowed to make reformists of us all, even the fascists, especially the fascists. But he's a patron, but he makes a star of us, but he makes us of rank, but he's a churchgoer and they place their hands on him and pray and bountiful grow their wives' bellies, a bully for each family, exponential doom, singing to each other in the private gazebo of their youth. Now sing. I said what I meant, but I said it in velvet. I said it in feathers. And so one poet reminded me, remember what you are to them. Poodle, I said. And remember what they are to you. Meet. We've been listening to Salma Sharif read from Customs. So, so in your review of Phil Metris's Sand Opera, you, you quote the poet and filmmaker Farouk Farakhsad, who said, what's it to me that no poem in Farsi has used the word explode? From morning to night, every direction I look, I see things are exploding. And this quote makes me think of something Robin Cost Lewis said in a talk of hers, that in the 40s, when Gwendolyn Brooks was asked why her sonnets always ended in slant rhymes or off rhymes, she answered, because these are off rhyme times. Um, and in the spirit of these quotes, I wanted to take the questions you raise in customs off the page and, and outside the book, both both to the world of, of the classroom and then questions of... Um, being out in the world at large also. Um, I'm thinking of something that Roger Reeves said about his own work. I'm always playing, figuring out how to make a different set of time inside someone else's time. Hmm. I have a friend who's a Victorianist, and he talks about time in the metropole versus time in the colony and how there's two different sets of time. I think about Fred Moten's notion of imagination. Within something, you build something else. He calls it invagination in In the Break. I think we can do that with time. That's what aesthetics allow us to do, to change time in this really interesting and concerted fashion. And I think about this when I think about the possibilities in a classroom, uh, of creating a different time, of building something else there that is different than than what exists when we leave it or before we arrive. And I'm thinking again also about your experience in June Jordan's Poetry for the People, something that you're starting your own version of at ASU. And I wondered if we could talk 
both how you experience that space as a student and how you're imagining your ver version of it uh, in Arizona. Yeah. Um, I could spend all day in those quotes. Um, I've thought often about what is it that stuck with me about particular classes and not others, you know, um, and why was it? Um, and so often I actually don't remember a word of what was say said, or I don't have a sense of like a lesson I came away with. It was, I think maybe it is like what, what Roger's describing, you know, a time within the time or something, you know, like I remember, um, uh, being in a class with Professor Vivi Clark at, at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley, and um, she played for us a Love Supreme, and it was like a boombox in the front of the class, and she's just, and I just remember hearing the entirety, you know, and then, and, and her pacing, I don't remember the conversation we had about it, I don't, you know, and um, I, I remember the temperature, I, I have a lot of lessons from from Poetry for the People, but it's also because I think I, I worked with it for many years, right? Mm -hmm. So I, it was an exercise of repetition. But again, it was just this feeling of like, they become these kinds of um, pin drops in your life or something, you know, and you and you remember the shift in the temperature and, and this kind of like reminder of the intensity of aliveness that you're in at any moment and you can kind of tap into at any moment. And, um, and how exciting it is actually to be in art and to be in writing and to be in language and to be with each other asking these questions. And that it's really, for me, not about the, in the end, I guess the conclusions of those questions or what the content even of those questions, but like the feeling of it, yeah. right? Let me ask you more specifically, because when I was uh, watching you talk about it on the June Jordan tribute panel, mm -hmm. one of the things that you really foregrounded, which maybe is, I wonder if this is related to this way you're describing an intensity of aliveness, um, was how ethically messy things were. Uh, and you, you, you talked about how Jordan didn't wait for an academic to approve what she did and, and the value of creating a space that that takes questionable risks essentially. And one mm -hmm. of the, one of the instances you mentioned was that when the Gulf war broke out, she put a translated Quran on the table and said, Arab literature is not being taught on this campus and we need to teach it. And you commented that this could easily have been stopped uh, and shut down because not, not all Arabs have the Quran as their book of faith. Not all Muslims are Arabs, et cetera. But the example that was most wild to me that you brought up was asking students to write in black English and African-American yeah. vernacular English um, to, to me, imagining white or Asian-American or Arab-American students writing in a black vernacular um, or to somehow workshop people who've written in it seems yeah. like there's a hundred ways it could go horribly wrong for every one way it could go right, whatever right means. But, but you've said that the workshop remained messy all the way through and that sense of feeling threatened to the core is what Jordan was pushing you toward. Um, and, and I just, I guess I wanted to hear, I mean, cause when we're talking about civility and uncivility, 
within your work. Um, and then thinking about pedagogy and thinking of, um, of ethical messiness or, or when Christina Sharp says we must become undisciplined, we must become undisciplined, outraged and immoderate in our work. I guess I wondered what, if at all, what these, what sort of classroom experiments you might consider, you know, taking those risks and, and yeah. <laughs> with it, with your students and in that sort of yeah. uh, a spirit. Yeah. You know, I also want to say that Poetry for the People is taught to collaboratively. So June is working with a, a cohort of like 15 or, or, or 20 student teacher poets, and they're collectively deciding what to teach. So like, which of these lessons to, I mean, I know, you know, I mean, this is a story I've heard about the, about the Gulf War and the Quran, and, you know, we're going to do this like that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I know poems were taught, you know, you were taught to write uh, in Black English or in African-American vernacular English in her class. And I know the roots of that are, are her own kind of work in the in the 70s and 80s in New York. Um, and um, she's an essay, Nobody Mean More to Me Than than You, that kind of documents this, this work with students. Um, I haven't done that lesson on, on my own here at, at, at ASU and I wouldn't, you know, um, and I'm aware of that too, of, of what is, um, that there is a particular lesson missing actually in my, you know, even if the, even if it is that, in other words, I am not approaching it, right? Not that I am not assigning the assignment. Maybe I wouldn't assign the assignment, right? But am I even giving the lecture at this point, right? And right. I'm, I'm not, and I need to think about that. But we do do things that like other people don't necessarily do. Like, I, I mean, I have colleagues that, you know, rightly or wrongly, like, you know, they have a list of things that should not happen in a, in a workshop. You don't write a persona poem. You don't use slurs of any kind. You write solely from your own experience. You're, to me, all of the, I don't know how to enforce any of those. I don't know who I can tell to use a slur or not. I mean, I do know, right? But as soon as I try to actually like vocalize it, right? All the kind of assumptions that I'm operating under have to come to the light. And that's the part that feels like you're going to, you know, to use like Bernice um, Reagan's term, like you're going to keel over and die at any moment when you're in that coalitional space, right? Because you're so challenged to the core. And um, I'm deeply invested in working with students and with each other to figure out how to articulate our own ways through these ethical challenges rather than waiting for an expertise to be developed for us to tell us what to do. You know, we figure it out and really us figuring it out is a choosing of our own failures, you know. Ultimately, like we we will fail, you know, but like we pick intentionally what we will fail, what we will fail at. Um, the discourse around who can do what and and how and why. Um, my my follow up question for myself is always, what happens if I don't do it? What happens if I don't do it? What if happens if I don't figure out how I might do this thing, mm. and and try to do it as best as I can, and present it as the beginning of a failure, if that makes sense? Yeah, you know. I remember I did a lesson um, when I was at Stanford, um, one of Trump's, President Trump's first thing, just to give an example of an ethical failure in a classroom. Like 
one of President Trump's first actions was the dropping of the mother of all bombs, I'm using air quotes, um, on Af Afghanistan, which is like, you know, the largest, like outside of like a nuclear warhead, right? Um, I don't know how many megatons it is, but, um, and I came to class and I was thinking of June as I was, uh, June Jordan as I was writing over and I came to class and I said, okay, class is canceled. You're gonna go to the library and find as much um, writing from like um, Afghani poets as you can in the library and bring it back, you know? And they went and they came back with like, you know, like four books, you know? And they were like, I didn't know how few there was, like that, the main lesson I remember from that day was like, I didn't know how few there was, mm -hmm. right? And um, and so we talked about what they had found. And then afterwards, we talked about what it meant to have this assignment come out of this political moment, you know, and the failure of that, and the failure of the imagining of needing to know this literature beyond our military interventions in the region, right? Later in the semester, I asked them to do something public with one of the poets that we've read in class. Overwhelmingly, they chose Adrian Rich. We read Black American poets. We read, you know, like we read poems in translation. We read, we read all over the map. The class was pretty mixed, you know, but essentially, you know, to put it bluntly, people either read within their own identity, right? Or they read rich publicly. And I was like, so what happened? Like, why didn't you, you know? And they said, well, we don't feel comfortable. We don't feel like we have a right to read this Brooks poem on the corner, right? And I thought, you know, and yet here it is again. Like here's yet another way that white supremacy regenerates itself. And it's being done out of this kind of um, noble ethical move that I think is misguided um, in a lot of cases. And um, I think very often it comes down to between the option of like, I'm not saying this to the students of this particular class, I'm saying this is like a general atmosphere I'm sensing between the option of doing the work and, and not doing the work and saying, I haven't done enough of the work or, you know, to do the work, you know, as if there isn't enough that's, that's actually possible within my lifetime. Like, we are choosing more and more to not do the work and, and have a kind of, um, yeah, a good ethical packaging for it. You know, I'm obviously simplifying a million, a sure. million factors at play here. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. I wanted to take this to a, a, a maybe a more fraught place also oh, <laughs> outside of the classroom you're really bringing it all right let's go. <laughs> so in, in your lightbox poetry interview they ask you if you think creative writing can be taught and you say the craft part of it can be taught but that part of it is just giving a damn and you share an anecdote about Thich Nhat Hanh where he asks audience members to turn to the person next to them hug them and introduce themselves to each other. And then after that, he asks them to do it again, but this time first really holding within themselves that they're both going to die, that the person you're going to hug and yourself are both going to die. 
and what and noticing how that experience of hugging this stranger and then introducing yourself is different. And you've said it is that sort of attention and care and urgency that creative writing requires, the type of vision or gaze that sees everything shimmering and precarious and sort of aspiring to a language that could live up to it. And you've also said also that the duty of the writer is to remind us that we will die and that we're not dead yet. But thinking of, of Thich Nhat Hanh's legacy, which is deeply connected to both that of Martin Luther King and of Bell Hooks, um, I wanted to ask you about the question of violence within customs and not just the violence inflicted on the marginalized, though this is very much present in the book, but but also the possibility of the violence that will be returned upon the empire. I think of you saying, Marx has always been a huge influence on me. The point isn't to think about the world, but to change it. As a writer, my addendum is that the point of literature isn't just to understand the world, but to end it. Um, and then Fargo, Tabaki's pinned tweet, Palestinians are reminding us that decolonization is not abstract, it is material, it is violent, it is not popular, it will be resisted and debated by the entire structures of the monstrous colonial world, and it is the only way forward, and it is the only path of life. Or from June Jordan herself, in perhaps one of her most notorious poems, poem about police violence, which opens with the stanza, Tell me something, what you think would happen if every time they kill a black boy, then we kill a cop. Every time they kill a black man, then we kill a cop. You think the accident rate wouldn't lower subsequently? I, I feel like you, you gesture in this book toward something similar. In that panel you did with Azarine, you, you looked at literature as what you called a defiant archive and that, it, that it's the specifics and in the minute quotidian places that the master narratives fall apart. But I think you could say, and I think it's, it seems intentional on your part, that unlike Jordan and unlike in other places in your work, in this regard, you leave things unspecified. And I wonder if this is connected back to your distrust of content now also. But... Um, the speaker who alludes to the quote-unquote wild thing that they might do if they can remember what it is. And the way the book opens with the hyper-enjammed poem America that feels strangled in a, in a corset of sorts, but ends in a way that is wildly open, that feels electric with danger, as if the speaker or the writer has left the page now to go do some unspecified thing off of the page. And one thing you that happens with you not specifying any of this that I that I I really like as a reader is that it sort of focuses it puts something it puts the onus on us as the reader to see how we're seeing you um, from our subject position to what we imagine yours is and then what we would imagine that you or the I in the poem would go do. Um, but all in all, I think the different time you create in this book, um, this notion of, of 
Moten's invagination, it doesn't feel like you're creating a different time within the book as a sort of safe haven within a larger thing, but rather almost as if you're smuggling some things in in order to burst out is how it feels um, as a gesture. And I guess I want to hear more about this, the role of the wild thing um, off the page, which is definitely something that, um, it, you know, obviously you're not specifying what June Jordan's specifying, but I think there's something similarly provocative in what you're doing in customs. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, I think often about, just to go back to like our workshop question and 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 the question of like, thank you for your that's enough now. And, you know, and, and just thinking about like all the affects and, and conclusions and statements that um, have been like massaged out of my, my poems for years, um, partly because of the workshop, partly just because of like the state, you know, itself, um, and partly because of like my own interest in, in suspending the, the, the conclusions that I might most immediately draw, which sometimes are, you know, I, I question, I, qu I question their, their bombast and their, their kind of like theatrics sometimes, you know, and I, I'm a, I guess I'm kind of a firm believer in like, I don't really, I don't really talk about violence or, or, or anything, um, unless I'm, I'm really ready to go there. You know what I'm saying? Like these are where, you know, I also don't use words like revolutionary often or anything unless um, I know exactly what I'm, what I'm saying, you know? And, and the reality is, is like, by really saying those things in this, in this podcast, right. Or in this, like, there's actually a very dangerous thing to say in this country still, you know? Um, but I, you know, one of the, I nod to a number of poems in this, in this, um, book and, and one of them is Gwendolyn Brooks's Beverly Hills Chicago and there's a line where she says they make um let me actually find it because I don't want to ruin it Gwendolyn Brooks says they make excellent corpses among the expensive flowers thinking as she drives through this wealthy uh you know white Beverly Hills neighborhood in Chicago right or the speaker does um and I remember reading that and saying did she really just say that like, does she say they make beautiful, like I hear in that, I hear in that, what do you think would happen? You know, like I, I think, or I hear in that a kind of um, anger and scorn that is necessarily kind of repressed here in this nation that I found repressed in my work through the workshop, through my own fear, but also I, you said smuggle. I like that. You know, this idea of like bringing it in in a way as if to get away with something. You know, as if I'm 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 actually planting these signals for a future that will look back and say, oh, she said that. You know, people were reading this part of it, but actually, what she was saying was this this whole other thing that is is far more threatening. Um, I often say, like, I think of my poems as laced in arsenic you know, and um, I like to think in terms of, of, of that and what I might get away with and, and what it means to hurt a reader, you know, uh, and who to hurt in that, in that kind of context. Mm. I think that's speaking to your question. I do or, too. Yeah. Could, could we hear the um, master's house? Yeah, sure. 
you know, I will say about your question, I think I'm more interested in what people might say around it, you know, and I, I'm more interested in what that conversation might kind of look like. And I think often of those lines of June Jordan's and I think of um, how absolutely dangerous and risky they were and remain, you know, um, and will be again, you know. And there's that famous uh, clip of Angela Davis in the, I think in the seventies and maybe the sixties when she's asked about violence Mm -hmm. and she flips the script back, you know, like who, who, who's committing violence. And if you're living in violence, if you're living in a, in a world as the victim of violence, I'm not the one to be questioned about the return of it. Yeah, no, I think, um, and then there's a, there's a famous interview with Hassan kind of funny where, where he says it's a conversation between the sword and the neck, right? When he's being asked by, a, I think, a French journalist about, you know, um, violent resistance against Israeli occupation, for example, right? Um, and, and can he enter a conversation instead, right? Um, and I think in, in kind of, you know, at a, at a particular dinner table, I, you know, I've, I have found myself at with flower arrangements and, you know, um, silverware I'm trying to pretend to know how to use, you know, where this conversation has kind of come up. It's, it, it has come up, you know, I will say that, um, you know, I believe in self-defense. Right. I think this kind of kind of comes comes back to it. But I also think there's there's a charge that's just beyond that, which is that beyond self-defense too. But then this see, that's where the tension that I thought was interesting about um Thich Nhat Han King and Bell Hooks, who yeah. who clearly are not at least I don't think they're naive people. Um, and I also think they have a re- revolutionary consciousness and also are, are, I mean, for bell hooks, it would be the love, like, I don't mean this in a yeah. simplistic way, but the revolution of love. Right. Um, or sur- King's beloved community. Or, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but also principally not, right. not, not, um, going that one step beyond self-defense. I understand. Um, I do think historically, again and again, we've been shown that it really doesn't happen otherwise. And even someone like Nelson Mandela, who was involved right. in an armed, in an armed, uh, right revolution, is has sort of right. been re-metabolized as if he was a, a nonviolent Absolutely. resistor. Yeah, yeah. The master's house. To wave from the porch, to let go of the grudge, to disrobe, to recall Ethel Rosenberg's green polka-dotted dress, to call your father and say, I'd forgotten how nice everyone in these red states can be, to hear him say yes, as long as you don't move in next door, to recall every drawn curtain in the apartments you have lived, to find yourself at 33 at a vast expanse with nary a papyrus of guidance, with nary a voice, a muse, a model, to finally admit out loud then I want to go home, to have a dinner party of intellectuals with a bell, long arm, lightly tongued at each setting, to sport your done gown, to revel in face serums, to be a well-calibrated burn victim, to fight the signs of aging, to assure financial health, to be lavender sachets and cedar lining in all the ways the rich might hide their rot, 
to eye the master's bone china, to pour diuretic in his coffee and think this erosive to the state, to disrobe when the agent asks you to, to find a spot on any wall to stare into, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall as the lad vested agent names article by article what to remove, to do this in order to do the other thing, the wild thing, to say this is my filmdom, the master's house, and I gaze upon it and it is good. To discuss desalination plants and terroir. To date briefly, a banker, a lapsed Marxist, and hear him on the phone speaking in billions of dollars, its residue over the clear bulbs of his eyes as he turns to look upon your nudity. To fantasize publishing a poem in the New Yorker, eviscerating his little need. To set a bell at each intellectual's table setting, ringing idea after idea, and be the simple-footed help rushing to say yes. To disrobe when the agent asks you to, to find a spot on any wall to stare into, to develop the ability to leave an entire nation thusly just by staring at a spot on the wall. To say this is my filmdom, the master's house. To recall the settler who from behind his mobile phone said, I'm filming you for God. To recall the sad God, God of the mobile phone camera, God of the small black globe and pixelated eye above the blackjack table at Harrah's, the metal toothed pit at Calendia checkpoint the same. To recall the Texan that held a shotgun to your father's chest, sending him falling backward, pleading, and the words come to him in Farsi. To be jealous of this is most desperate language, to lament the fact of your lamentations in English, English being your first defeat. To finally admit out loud, then I want to go home. To stand outside your grandmother's house. To know, for example, that in Farsi, the present perfect is called the relational past and is used at times to describe a historic event whose effect is still relevant today, transcending the past. To say, for example, Shah dictator Budaast translates to the Shah was a dictator, but more literally, to the Shah is was a dictator. To have a tense of is was, the residue of it over the clear bulb of your eyes to walk cemetery after cemetery in these states and nary a gravestone reading sonmas, to know no nation will be home until one does, to do this in order to do the other thing, the wild thing, but you've forgotten what it was. I've been listening to Solma Sharif read from Customs, just out from Grey Wolf Press. I want to spend a moment around something that you've said that I, I find really remarkable. Um, and maybe this points back to valuing ethical messiness and the uncontrollable again. In your Paris Review interview from years ago, you, you talk about how you describe your poetry as, as first political and, and then documentary, and then as a pushback against people who say this sort of writing pre precludes aesthetic rigor. You say, quote, cliched bad writing often means cliched bad politics and vice versa. And you've said elsewhere that negative capability in thought leads to negative capability in action. I wanted to spend a moment with this interplay between politics and aesthetics. Um, and I haven't yet got to the thing that I really am compelled by, but mostly people focus on, on the effect politics has on aesthetics or questions of the effect the political has on aesthetics and and here and as an example your pushback against the idea that it can't be rigorous or good um, if it's political 
But you also think in this conversation about the reverse. You say, it's exciting for me to think of poets that are allowing their politics to also be shaped by these aesthetic considerations and wondering when the poetic will lead you to the kind of political surprise that a dogmatic approach wouldn't allow. These are the artists that live on the fringes of what is aesthetically and politically accepted. And I love this idea of political surprise, I guess, that um, a, a politics that isn't dogmatic, as you say, but a politics that's open um, to be surprised uh, and even be surprised by the work we're doing in the aesthetic realm. Uh, and I wondered if, if me reading that back to you uh, I know it's a while ago, so who knows if you're connected to it these days or not. But mm. but talk to us about the political surprise for an artist who's engaged in politics. I think for me, I guess my definition of of political too is just like is pretty close to just social, you know. And it, it it's like it's the idea of being with other people, and that power necessarily appears in that moment and must be um, dealt with, you know, and must be passed around as quickly as possible, perhaps, or as evenly as possible. I don't know what it is exactly, you know, but, but must continually be, um, kind of questioned. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about like the exilic stance and the nomadic stance that we were talking about earlier. And that, that also informs my, and, and that perhaps we were describing it or using it to describe like one's relationship to the metropole or to the center, right? But I would also use it to describe my relationship to the fringes and to the, you know, to like, to political action. Um, and I think a poetic sensibility in this case is a kind of um, one that is not afraid of betrayal um, and of betraying, you know? And um, and I don't mean in the service of, of a state, you know, or in a service of power, but the moment, right? The moment when the when the revolution itself becomes power, right? Which is a, which is that thing that we've seen over and over again, you know, and the failure that, you know, or success that you know that that I've lived in in the aftermath of, you know, that too has to be betrayed, mm. right? Um, and I think that betrayal for me comes out of my more poetic allegiances, which are allegiances to go back to hooks and to love, you know, to the erotic, to that, the ungovernable that's like shared between us this kind of unnamed and unnameable uh, that um, necessarily contradicts the, the dictatorships, you know, that follow and must be necessary. Um, well, there's something that just comes to mind now. I don't know if I'm going to speak it well, but thinking about, I guess, thinking about my own engagement and activism, which goes back a long way, and then my my engagement in, in writing, one of the things that I often, I don't know if this is related to political surprise, but one of the things that I find that's often hard for me is the way sometimes polarized political situations can really flatten language in a way that um, is actually the opposite of 
of observation. So what I mean by that is, um, so I had this guest on many years ago, Sally Tilsdale, and she, for a large part of her career, was a um, abortion nurse. Um, and she wrote an essay. She's, of course, pro-choice. And um, she wrote an essay that attends to the observation of doing her job. And that essay includes descriptions. And because that essay describes fingers or spinal cords or other things that are now in the trash can, um, people thought she was writing an argument for pro. People wrote her angrily because this right. was then, I mean, and she acknowledges yeah. like this yeah, yeah, gives yeah. in the real world, this gives ammunition. We're supposed to call it a zygote. And of course, sometimes it is, but, or a clump of cells and you're giving this leverage to the other side in this political debate simply by attending to the experience of what she's doing and her, her, um, that's where some of the tension, that's where I find this compelling, I guess, around can our aesthetics change our politics, not can it make us pro-life instead of pro-choice, but could, could like her position is a complex position. She believes you're killing something when you do an abortion, but she also thinks it's the best case scenario in a, in a fraught circumstance more often than not. Um, not that I'm saying I'm advocating that position or even sure. saying it correctly, but I, I guess the political surprise is compelling because so often in activist circles, I feel like things are put forth because of the utility they have in an argument, but not because they're actually yeah. true in a lived sense. You know, I mean, I think so much of, of writing for me or my writing too, I mean, it might be not be visible or anything, but, you know, is... Um, kind of against utility actually, you know, and, and trying to kind of be a guardian of like the seemingly irrelevant or, you know, just not the point, the, the small that makes up the content and quality of our lives, you know, and that gives us the, again, that why the impetus and the necessity for, for, well, revolution, I'll use the word here, you know. Um, I think um, there certainly are, there are definitely moments I've had and there, there are moments I can, think of where an allegiance to a kind of uh, lyrical rigor has led to some politically questionable calls on my end. Um, and there's one in particular I haven't been able to kind of rectify or reconcile, I should say. Um, and that's, I talk about it in the talk against goodness. And it's a, it's a scene that, that I couldn't work into the title poem of my last book, Look, um, and the the entirety of the scene, uh, it got worked down in the poem to an exchange between the speaker and a, and, a, and a Republican that's present at the Republican National Convention. But the real meat of the story was the exchange between the speaker and the um, white liberal who was also protesting the Republican National Convention and decided to kind of side with the, the Republican against the speaker. Um, just too too many words to get to the content of that story. And I think about that often, right? That lyricism in that moment or, or, or kind of lyrical revision actually did this thing that we're trying to not do, right? Is like it, it flattened the story and it and it went down this kind of like path of least resistance. Okay, we'll just stick to the extremes that we kind of know because it takes 
far more telling to bring in the other person and reveal what is happening there. So that's that's one tension that's unfortunate that I've kind of um, noticed. But I think that idea of betrayal I'm talking about is is more linked to what this example that you're bringing forward. I have also been in in positions and places where the poem makes me say something I'm surprised to say, and it and I feel and it it um, or in order to actually be a poem, I have to say certain things that aren't as easily. Um, unappropriate um, or something, you know, I don't have as tight a grip over, over like the moral kind of ramifications of it. Um, but I think that as long as there is a readership, I think this is a, this points to a problem of the readership and not a problem of the writing itself. Right. And that it's complicated because you, we can't be naive to the ways our writing we is going to be used either. And she yeah. wasn't, Tisdale sure. wasn't, but at the same time, I mean, yeah. it's like... There's a lot I don't write because of that. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe as a last question, I, I want to stay with, stay off the page for another minute. Um, okay. Both when I talked to Natalie Diaz and when I talked to Kaba Akbar, they, they were, I think, in, in some similar ways to you, thinking about bringing concerns of poetry off the page and into the world, but also what poetry can't do that the poet as an activist has to do in other ways. Um, and I know many of the poets you admire had careers that demonstrated this, um, not just June Jordan, but certainly her, but George Oppen, um, who had two separate poetry careers with decades in between as a union activist or Muriel Rukeyser. Um But someone who I spoke to Kava Akbar about, who, who he in particular teaches, that I know is also close to your heart, is, is Farag, Farag Saad, who, um, who in so many ways ignored established customs, um, the quote-unquote proper way of getting published, or how you were supposed to write as a woman, um, what you were supposed to write about. And she suffered deeply for it, um, not only having her child taken from her electroshock therapy, her work being banned, um, her life in exile, where she became an equally noteworthy filmmaker. Um, so I guess circling back to looking at the gaze in your work and how you said you seek an intensity of regard and experience or the lines of Farak Saad herself quote, life is perhaps that enclosed moment when my gaze destroys itself in the pupil of your eyes. Mm -hmm. I, I wondered, I know you mentioned earlier that you don't say that you're translating her poems anymore, that that's a private experience, but is there a way you could speak to us about her and the persistence of vision, to borrow the phrase from, from a sequence of your poems um, and her importance to you, or what aspect? There's so many aspects to her life narrative that I could imagine would be the ones that were particularly compelling to you, but I, I'd be curious to hear if, if you feel comfortable speaking about it. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of aspects to her life narrative um, and I think I got a little, um, 
And part of why I wanted to translate her and have my own experience of her was that it was almost impossible to kind of deal with her work in English without the kind of packaging of her of her life, you know, around it. And 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 so much of that packaging feels too tailored for a kind of Western audience, right? Again, like here is here here is here is a here is the beleaguered Iranian woman and the first and the lonely, you know, she calls herself lonely, right? Um and um and uh always followed by wasn't that awful. I don't hear you doing that. I'm just I'm just kind of like laying out my own relationship to her in in English um and trying to figure out what I might add to it or kind you know, but like I would read these like intros about her work and herself and I was like, okay, but what is the like what's the actual tone of the work? Like I want to, like, what's the actual temperature of her work? Like I can kind of see it, but I'm not quite sure what's happening. And can I recreate that for myself in English somehow, you know, and can we, can we have a conversation like that, you know? Mm. And um, I can't answer you when it comes to gaze and her gaze. I can say that um, being in her syntax, for as long as I was, um, and being in Iman the her last poem, the "Let Us Bring Faith to the um, Beginning of the Cold Season," just um, a very long poem, was kind of like um, in 2014. I think I I spent a winter reading only Dickinson and transcribing Dickinson, and it broke something in like open in me and being in Farouk's syntax did a similar thing. And I think a lot of the, my willingness to look beyond the material to name the material actually, or to like make the material make sense um, came from her landscapes um, and her own kind of kinds of explorations of domestic spaces in particular, you know, to go at AWP being, hearing Hassan uh, Zaktan read with Fadi Judah, his translator, and um, gonna butcher the answer he gave, but he was talking about like generations of Palestinian poets and how um, there's like the Darwish generation and they, the poets were like, you know, portraits above the mantle, you know, in the home. And then his generation is like the poet is in the home, like in the hearth, sitting with the people, right? Like that shift and, you know, and so like spatially, how do you describe yourself to and within the house of, you know, and Farouk Zad has this poem where she, it's a very short poem. And she asks, uh, like, if a friend is coming over to her house to bring her a lamp and a window so she can look out at the, at the alley below, right? That particular gaze you know, that is both it is held within, you know, and is looking out and is kind of reporting back um, that relationship to, to the domestic and the public and the interior and personal and the collective um, is, I feel, I feel at home. Oh, I used it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel at home, but you know. <laughs> Well, that'll be an approximation for what I feel there. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe a yeah. solidarity. 
maybe or a kindred moment yeah maybe or I maybe like, not kindred know, we shouldn't use kindred either. i was gonna say i i feel like you know we've we've necessarily problematized a lot of words today but yeah. uh you know but this particular moment of of like um that's before we find the word for the thing itself and and i'm kind of just like looking at another person and being like you know what i mean like, and the other person's like yeah i kind of know what I, I know what you mean but we can't that's the the feeling i want to make alive in my poems that's about as close as i can get yeah well let's let's go out with two more um okay thinking persistence of vision telephized confession and into english persistence of vision televised confession you were like a daughter to me the prisoner's mother tells me meal by meal she sets and clears she rinses some tableware the prisoner never held then a glass she did then recalls her daughter's mouth opening softly to drink water on state-run tv then water over everything the glass appears in hundreds of frames before reaching the prisoner's lips. In between each frame, the grief, our eyes jump to create movement. Dark strips to keep sharp the glass lip, water skin trembling, hand that trembles it. These mothers move as flip books, tiny stuttering pass, sobbing at the sink. It is death that sharpens our sight each 16th second, slender, blocking enough light so that the prisoner's face is again and again alive in each light punctured frame, her mouth and hundreds of stills is still opening softly to drink. Into English. I think I will translate Furu. I am urged to translate Furu as soon as possible. In my hours, I find it is very private. It is very private to be in another's syntax. Look, a translator holds up for the flash, a hooked and thrashing bass. Lament, lament, another says. I say, let them have it. The think tank wonks, the panty sniffing critics, the consultant for the U.S. Navy. Noble, they call it, these saviors into English. She asked a friend to bring her a window and a lamp. I ask a friend to bring me a window and a lamp. We watch the thronging lucky alley. We wave to each other not. Who would I do it for? You? I have forgotten even myself as reader. I turn off our light. Thank you so much for returning to Between the Covers. Thanks so much, David, for having me back. It's been a real joy. I've been talking today to the poet Soma Sharif about her latest book, the poetry collection Customs from Grey Wolf Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, 
makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Solmaz's work can be found at solmazsharif.com. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, help ensure the future of conversations just like this by joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters. You can find out more about all the potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter from rare collectibles to bonus audio to the Tin House Early Readership Program at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>